a lot of people are just very bearish now, right? A lot of investment thesis has changed. What was super hot in 2020, 2021 wasn't as hot as well today. And even the venture capitals are more quiet nowadays. In terms of sector focus, back in the day, we were very focused on anything that can produce large GMV because at the time, the thesis was obviously large GMV, large market size. If you just convert a small percentage of that, there will be $100, $200 million revenue company. Uh, that does not happen to be the case. Nowadays, a lot of myself included look for something that's more tangible, like revenue and even pre-seed stage, look at a lot of companies as EBITDA positive. I think that's the way it should be because when you talk about real tech innovations, the first question is the talent even ready to make something that's of global scale? Because when you talk about tech, it has to be global. So when I look at Indonesia, it's a consumer-driven country. It makes sense that a lot of the investments are more consumer-driven, more agriculture, because that's what Indonesia is really and the current market dynamic is more sustainable in the long run. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Fandi, really excited to have you on the show. I still remember having that great coffee and then at the start of you starting up launching the fund and now here you are and everyone's like, oh, have you heard of Fundy? He's <laughs> look at this, he's look at that. And I'm like, okay, you got to be on a podcast now that you're up and running. So yeah, please introduce yourself. Well, thanks, Jeremy, for having me here. Obviously, I remember the coffee and very appreciative that SN and you have always been very supportive of us and very collaborative. So a bit about my background, I'm the founding partner of Copital Ventures. Copital Ventures is a pre-seed seed stage focused fund. We are Southeast Asian. We have a Southeast Asian mandate, but we have a particular focus in Indonesia, just because that's where our background is. Initially, before Copital Ventures, I was also running Copital Network, basically an informal angel network made up of founders and exec from the leading internet companies in Indonesia. Together with the members of Copital Network, with various members, we have invested in 30 plus companies over the last two to three years. And very proud to say that all the companies we've invested in thus far have raised follow-on funding and we've managed to secure four liquidity events and have a DPI of around 1.6, 1.7 from the past three years of investments. So obviously with that result, my partner and I decided to actually go out there and raise some external capital to actually invest in early stage companies. We feel with a fund compared to being an angel investor, we'll be able to create more impact for the founders just because we'll build have more stake, we'll be able to make things more formalized and we'll have more resources to help them with. So that's a bit about my professional background the past few years. Prior to that, I was in the traditional industry. I was an entrepreneur, never reached the success that 
other entrepreneurs that's been on this platform have experienced a lot of failures and ended up, even though I experienced a lot of failures, managed to save up some money. That's when I started angel investing in 2020. So luckily enough for me, I actually met Edward and James, the co-founder of Kopi Kanan in 2016 when I first graduated and came back from the U.S. And in 2020, one the reason why I stopped working in the traditional industry was because COVID came, everything sort of slowed down. And at that time, Kopi Kanan was also reaching the peak of its popularity. So they, Edward and James, also have started to mature as founder and have started angel investing. So that was when I decided to start angel investing with them. They were gracious awesome. enough to allow me to do that together. Yeah. So could you share a little bit more about how you started angel investing and you're part of the Corpital Network, right? So that's in 2020 yeah. before Corpital as a fund came up. So could you share a little bit more about what the experience was like? About angel investing in general? I mean, it was great, right? It was something very new to me personally and meeting a lot of founders at the early stage, especially in the early days. I used to invest in public equities a lot. So actually most of my financial success come from public equities, if any. And therefore, when I first met early stage founders asking for four or five million valuation, that was a culture shock for me. And some even asking for double digit valuation off the bat. I didn't know how to value the company and in the early state, but that was a shock. And then eventually after listening to multiple pitches, I just realized that the market at that time was at the peak. And at the same time, we can't look at the startup, like how we look at traditional businesses, even though valuations were ridiculous that day in the 2020, 2021, there's a reason why valuations are in the millions, even in the pre-seed stage, because you obviously need that amount of capital in the early days to actually do something with it, right? To run with it, to find product market fit, to get proof of concept, to get traction. Otherwise there's no business that that you can actually build because every business with capital. So that was the biggest thing for me, the health shop. And also just how different every founders are. I think that's something else. And a lot of founders come 2020, 2021 with intentions of just fundraising. So a lot of them are just saying, a lot of them are showing me tables of comparables from other markets, which may not apply to Indonesia, right? Especially like obviously India, China, and the US are just way bigger markets and the people there culturally are just very different, right? But at the same time, that was something that I learned a lot as well. But of course, there's that few founders who are still like actually starting up just with the right intention, which is of building something and identifying a problem and trying to solve that problem with their company. Yeah. So, yeah. 2020 was a big time, right? I remember yes. Indonesia was very hot in 2020. So, so many companies, so many founders, right? Also, a lot of valuations were going up pretty high during that time yep. frame. And a lot of people also started angel investing. Yes, yes, yes. During yes. that time as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that was maybe too much time at home, maybe. So, you know, I guess my, from your perspective is, what were some dynamics that you saw from the Indonesia market from that 2020 versus today? The dynamics, I think a lot of people are just very bearish now, right? A lot of investment pieces has changed. What was super hot in 2020 wasn't as hot as well today. And even the venture capitals are more quiet nowadays, right? And in terms of sector focus, back in the day, we were very focused on anything that can produce large GMV because at the time, the thesis was obviously large GMV, large market size. If you just convert a small percentage of that, there will be a hundred, two hundred million dollar revenue company. Uh, that does not happen to be the case. And nowadays, a lot of myself included look for something that's more tangible, right? Like revenue and like even pre-seed stage nowadays, 
look at a lot of companies as EBITDA positive, which I think is great, right? I think that's the way it should be because when you talk about real innovation, tech innovations, the first question is the talent even ready to actually make something that's of global scale? Because when you talk about tech, it has to be global. We don't use, for example, Microsoft that's made in Indonesia, right? We use Microsoft that's obviously Microsoft. A lot of the software has, anytime you make a tech, it has to be global scale. So when we, when I look at Indonesia, it's a commodity driven country, consumer driven country, very consumptive. So it makes sense that a lot of the investments nowadays are more consumer driven, are more agriculture, because that's what Indonesia is rich in. Yeah. So I think the market correction, the current market dynamic is true, is more sustainable in the long run. And also you, you mentioned that, you know, founders at that time were very much like, you know, using a lot of comparables, right? So global yep. comparables and focus on fundraising. Do you think the sentiment has changed amongst founders today as well? Or I think some founders still do that. I mean, it does comparable, does make sense for some sectors, right? But for the most part, for me personally, I don't really, I think that's the last thing that I look at just because I, just because obviously I've previously been an entrepreneur myself, a small time entrepreneur myself, and, and I'm very, I'm quite realistic, right? And those comparables are sort of where you hope to be with the kind of market. So it may not be applicable for local context, but then I think a lot of founders, typically the ones that have never been operators tend to use it more often than not. Yeah. Yeah. How should a founder use it? I mean, obviously it makes sense. I've, yeah. I've done that before when I was a founder I fundraise. I mean, I say these are the comparables. And yep, yep. Of course, at that time I was building a company in the US, right? So I was comparing against it's the US. different. So it's a yeah, yeah. bit different. It's like not too bad, right? It's like, hey, yep. we're in Boston, New York, this is the SF. But of course now it's like Singapore, Indonesia, I don't know, Hong Kong, China, global benchmarks, right? But how do you think people should go about talking about that, I guess? Yeah. Just in terms of how it works in that particular market, right? That particular context is just very different. So that's something that people have to really specify. I think, for example, how it works in India, how it works in the US, how it works in China. A lot of, for example, a lot of people build social commerce. Obviously in Chinese, Pintoto and others have been a huge success. Yeah. And when you apply it to Indonesia, hasn't been the case as far for certain categories, right? So obviously not very applicable. But at the same time, does that mean social commerce is a bad business model? No, I don't think it is. I think it just depends on the category you're in. So that's how you should apply it instead of like, hey, Pintoto works here. It must work in Indonesia. Yeah, I definitely heard that before. This is the main yeah. one of X. Yeah, the main one, one of X. Like quick commerce in 2021. Oh, that was hot. 2020. That was so right? hot. Yeah. Oh, so hot. I was always so confused as well. I mean, at the time it was like gorillas and I think there was another one, right? There's a multi-billion dollar. So now Zepto obviously recently still raised a huge amount of capital. So I think a lot of the investors, myself included, I invested in quick commerce back then. It was it was just based on comparable, right? I don't think there is any anything that can tell you otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think the tricky part, like you said, is that you do it by comparable, but then it's by analogy, right? But yeah, then yeah. if your market is US, is tier one, and then it's like a tier one city, like SF yeah. or New York, yeah. and you go all the way down to GDP per capita, you go to the urban design, the local market yeah. power can be quite different. Yeah, I think a lot of pre-commerce yeah. folks have really struggled because it turns out that the value of the basket is quite different, right? It's yeah. quite hard to make different money if you're moving a bag of rice. You know, it's just very heavy, yeah. very bulky, and it's one bag of rice, it's just can't make money. Or at least if you have to charge it to the customer, right? Yeah. Yep. And unfortunately, actually, to add to that, I think even myself included, looking at the comparables, I just, at that time, not looking at things too deeply, just thought it will work as well, right? Maybe it might still work, never say never, I guess. But obviously, as you mentioned, people have been having a hard time. And when there are those comparables, when you put too much focus in that, you tend to be biased. Regardless of the amount of research you do, you're just going to say, oh, 
this works in this market. Look at the amount of funds they raise. Probably work in my our market too. And so I think that's that's where for me personally, I've learned to look at comparables and start to discount it a lot. Just because it works there doesn't mean so as so that I don't get too biased as well in terms of how I view a company and a sector. Yeah, yeah. I think one version I saw that it works. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a great, huge, you know, breakout success, but I, I saw that one product category that works for quick commerce is like cigarettes and vapes. Yeah. It's high value, it's small, it's portable, and when people want it now. So it's quite interesting to see that some products can fit that value chain in a sense as well. So what is interesting is that obviously for yourself, Capital, you've built it up with an investment thesis of being focused on early stage founders. Could you share a little bit more about what are the things that differentiate Capital from other VC funds? I guess the thing that differentiate Capital is that I always tell this to people, we're not a value at VC. We try to, well, we don't prom- we don't we try not to overpromise. And I think our equity will reflect that. We don't look for double digit equity. We look for three to four percent three to seven percent max because that hopefully reflects the amount of work we'll put in. And we don't double down in terms of investing in the next round or follow-on rounds because we don't want to give any bad signaling to the companies that we don't double down in. Because if you double down, automatically you're gonna be more focused in helping that particular company compared to other company because you have more stake, that's probably gonna return your fund or at least you hope it will. So that's the difference. And also my partners. So my partner is the founder of Kopikanangan. Uh, obviously one of, I think, the first FNB unicorn in Southeast Asia. And also the founder also used to be an entrepreneur previously. He used to run a B2C furniture startup. Yeah. So having operated in the tech scene that has already made it, made it in a sense that obviously they have grown to a certain scale, been able to build a company for the past 10 years. I think that stands out in the kind of advice that my partners can give to the next generation of entrepreneurs. Yeah. How did you meet him? So I met, as mentioned earlier, I met Edward in 2016 when I just graduated from school. And then Edward eventually introduced me to James. And eventually the past four years, three, four years when we started Angel Investing, since we started Angel Invest, we just got a lot closer. And that's when we decided to actually build out this fund. Yeah. How did you formulate the differentiation, right, of this fund because it's not similar to many other funds, right? So you're focusing again on the first check, minority investment, no follow on. How did you put together this thesis? Because we realized that exit in Southeast Asia, the bigger it gets, obviously, the more difficult it is. I think when we look at if we own too much stake, like let's say we own 25% stake of a billion dollar company, the only place that you can exit that position will be in Nasdaq, right? I don't think like the local public PO in Indonesia can absorb that kind of exit. And obviously in the early Obviously, in our previous investment experience, we have entered quite early and we have managed to exit several positions quite quickly after that because we believe that secondaries will happen in profit and cash flow positive companies regardless of any market environment. Example would be we invested in this beauty startup due to a consumer brand and they were profitable at that time had to be convinced to actually even take our money. And I think within six to seven months, they received offers again. And obviously, as a cash flow positive company that's growing by themselves, they wouldn't want too much dilution, right, in the primary round. So that's when an exit event happened. But then, of course, if you have 10, 20, 30 percent equity in a company, you still probably can exit, even though such events might happen. You can exit all your position just because it will make the company look bad, right, publicly. Why is a big anchor investor in exiting. So that's where we come up with the smaller equity just because we want to be agile to exit. Like that founder in particular, since they did not want to be too diluted, but then the next investor that's coming in, we thought that they will, they'll be really helpful to these guys. We thought, hey, why not, why not take our shares, right? We've already gotten some profits and we believe that 
with these guys on board have with their minimum equity requirement, they'll be able to take this company to the next level, right? which they did eventually. I think it's really interesting because we're talking about two things, right? We're not just like, we talked about the exits environment and that it's not great in Southeast Asia and the second yep. what to do about it, right? Which is agility. Let's yep. talk about the first one first. Like, why is it the exits are not so great? And I say this because I was chatting with a VC recently and the VC was like, okay, the last thing I want to talk about in any public space is the lack of exits in Southeast Asia. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like kind of the elephant in the room, right? That's why everybody's asking the question now, at least in the private rooms in some of the public spaces. So what, what do you think is happening from your perspective? And I'm happy to like bounce with you as well. I mean, in the public space, at least in Indonesia, there's not too many investors, retail investors in the public market, right? And that's why the market cap of the public market has not grown that much compared to the U.S. public exchanges or other countries. I think people People just, obviously, I think a lot of startups have tried to solve this. They are not, I think Indonesia have lack of, or lack of better work, lack of access to financial literacy. And with all this up and coming stock investment platform that's coming up, they have been helping a lot in terms of educating these first-time investors, but I don't think it's still enough just because of the lack of financial literacy. I think that's also true, not just of Indonesia, right? But I think Singapore, Thailand, all the stock exchanges are also really small, frankly. So it's not really an Indonesia thing, right? And I think the tricky part is that it's hard to have a billion dollar listing, I think, on these platforms as well. And even if it's a smaller, also, it's also pretty hard to get enough retail interest. So I think the only one I can think of that two folks that have gone public that I think in Indonesia stock exchange, right? Which maybe seems somewhat viable, right? I think one is Gojek, Goto, yep. as well as Bukalapak. What do you yep. think about that? Yeah. Obviously, the stock has went down a lot, right? Unfortunately. But if there is an actual tech company, I, I would say like Goto is an actual tech company, right? It made all our lives so much easier. I don't spend... There's not a day that goes by that I don't use Gojek, I think. For me personally, I'm a big fan of the app. So if Gojek is not able to command such a high valuation, what about other companies? They are sort of top of the pile, right? And I think in the Indonesia tech ecosystem, we'll go wherever Gojek will go to will in the near future in order to obviously, or the market to pick back up, go to have to actually rebound as well. Yeah, it's not an easy market. I mean, I think Grab also had a relatively high listing on the US exchange. I think exchange. That's quite different though. I think Grab, one of the reasons why their stock is not as, as strong as it's supposed to be or that the value, the price has dropped a lot was partly because Grab obviously went public in the US, right? I don't think the US retail investors know too much about Southeast Asia. I do think that Grab will have a stronger IPO if it had happened in a Southeast Asia stock exchange. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's interesting because uh, right now I think Grab has about double the enterprise value right now in terms of yep. valuation for yes. then go to and then C group actually I always tell people it's actually double that or grab so you know a lot of people comparing grab and go to and I'm like yeah C is the highest right so far so it'll be interesting to see but there's not that many other success stories on yep. the exit market and like you said I think it causes that dynamic right which is like okay if there's not exits then there's not that many growth stage investors, right? Series C, yep. Series D, Series E. And then if so, that makes it hard for the Series A folks, right? And the Series B folks. And then that makes it hard for the seed folks as well and the pre-seed folks. So it's all going backwards, right? So how do you think founders should be thinking about it if exits are not so great? the market yeah just be careful about the valuation right i think in the just now as we speak talk about earlier in 2020 2021 i think we view post money valuation as a success metric i don't think we should do that anymore we should raise what we need and at a conservative valuation as possible just because of the exit landscape right we should work backwards for example if we feel that our company can go to 5 million maybe the last round that you want to be raising private equity at before eventually going public or whatever the case may be maybe 100 million because obviously the last investors have to have that upside as well right right 
So obviously work backwards and pre-stage. I would always recommend people not to go above 10 million just because again, if you work backwards, it will be quite difficult if you raise, let's say at 20, 30. Obviously there have been success stories that you raise at 20, you can still like build into the valuation the next year and so on and so forth. But more often than not, the lower the valuation, the better it is just for the founders as well once the dilution is kept at a minimal. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really interesting to hear. And obviously I think some founders will say like, okay, you know, Fundy and Jeremy, you're saying this because you're trying to yeah. get a big chunk of the <laughs> valuation. You want a low valuation so you get a big chunk of the company or the file. Then how should we think about it? from your perspective. I'm also happy to chime in my thoughts as well. Right. So what I always tell founders is that, hey, look, we can exit and we can follow on at least for Copital, right? Well, we, at least we can exit if you don't do well and we, do, we don't do follow on investments. That's what I mean. The alignment of interest is actually the same as the founders. As an early stage investor, we're not trying to take more of your equity, but we need you to do really well for us to be able to have a secondary exit or for us to even go all the way with you and eventually have a public exit or getting acquired. So entering and also in terms of our equity, we don't really take too much equity for us for it to even matter in the long run. I, I think what's interesting is that from my perspective, the other way I would address that concern, and I think it's, it's an honest concern, is exactly the way you said it. Maybe the only thing I'll say is like, hey, we're not saying have a lower valuation just to have a lower valuation, but we're also saying yep. try to raise a smaller amount as possible. And yes. Focus on building the business, right? Because in that case, then you basically dilute yourself less as well. You yes. still have more control, right? And give yourself more upside over the medium to long term. But frankly, right. honestly, when I was a founder, I was terrible at this. I mean, <laughs> when I was a founder, I was like, I want a higher valuation. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I don't know. That's how I negotiated. I don't know. Anyway, young and foolish on my side. There's, I mean, I will do that too, I guess. If I was yeah, a founder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Easy advice to give, but it's very hard. I, I think when I was there, it was just hard for me for to sure. do that. But I, I think what's interesting as a result is that the the reason why we're talking about this is as well is that if you have a low valuation, you're able to bring on the right people to some extent, yep. then within reason, of course, what you're trying to do is you're trying to give yourself as a founder agility to exit, which yep. also gives you as the capital, the agility to exit as well, because you know, you're able to do those up rounds more carefully yep. as well. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Right. So how do you feel about the strategy? Well, we are very excited about the strategy. Obviously, I think this is the perfect time for us to actually launch this strategy. Valuation has come down a lot and the founders with the right intentions is actually building businesses now. And also to add to your point, if you bring the right people on board on day one, you might not need that many fundraise, right? Eventually, the goal here is to, as you mentioned, to build a sustainable growing business. And when you're a sustainable growing business, there will always be buyers, regardless of which sector you're at. I think that has to be the goal in mind and no better time than today. Yeah. From your perspective, I think what we saw, for example, there's an article that came out a few months ago, like eFishery had a recent transaction and then yep. some folks were able to sell secondaries. I mean, obviously the angels some of them cashed out entirely. Some funds, they put 50% and sold it and they kept 50% going. The way we think about it is, at least from a fund, my fund's perspective, is we have to always put the LP's interests first, which is obviously, even if there's a lot of upside for me on the table, how many companies have gone on to a high valuation and have suddenly just stagnated there? A lot of them have. And it will be very prudent, at least for my end as a fund manager, to actually take some exits first whenever there's a chance, right? Because you never 
know what may happen in the future. That's what I always advise founders as well. Whenever there's a chance, nobody's telling you to exit fully, but this is your company. You don't want to just make money off your salary. If you want to do that, you want to find something more stable. And the life as a founder is the opposite of a stable life. Instability every single day of your life. So whenever there's a possibility of exiting, just like how I apply it to myself, I tell the founders, hey, you should make some money off the table. Yeah, yeah. that's really important because equity doesn't let you pay the bills, pay yep. your children, buy yep. a house. Yep. So all these are hard things to say, but it's the awkward reality of it as well. Any interesting quirks or things that you notice about now that you've done both the angel investing, but now you're doing as a professional VC, any quirks or anything special about the Indonesian market that people should be thinking about? Uh, just that founders here come from a very different background. I think the founders that succeed here, they have a very specialized intention and they know the market really well. Those are the founders that typically succeed. Where else? Obviously, I think in other market, there are certain types of founders that come from a more polished background, I'll say, that probably has an equal or higher chance of success. I think Indonesia is a market where you need to be very localized, that local network, local context, and you have to really be able to, I don't know how to put it, but I guess there's a certain intangible quality that you need in order to succeed in Indonesia. Right. What it's is a that very different thing? I guess I'll mention this founder. The founder of uh, FitHub is very impressive for me, for example. FitHub, the traditional business, and then the founder has never really been in a consulting, banking background, but clearly very business savvy, very commercial. And that's why the business have continued to grow over time, right? He has been able to adapt and he has been able to study the market, obviously become a sector expert in it. And also just looking at Kopikanang, same type of founder, very entrepreneurial. Edward has been in, Edward has done businesses in multiple industries in the past before starting out F&B, but has never actually worked as a consultant. Sounds good. Could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? I guess when I started angel investing, and I would say that that personally is a time that I took a step forward away from the more safer traditional industry. Previously working in a traditional industry, you sort of know what you're getting in every day. But I think it felt really exhilarating when I first made my first investments into a startup. Scary yet exhilarating. So I guess that was the moment that I would describe as being brave. Just because obviously that first investment set up the rest of the path for me to where I am at today. Hopefully just at the start of my investment journey that have made me fall in love so much with the investing in the tech investing. How have you matured as an investor since that first investment till today? I guess just empathy and being candid to founders. I think honesty is very underrated in the current ecosystem that we have. I think a lot of people just say things that, and I was part of that as well, just say things that people want to hear. But I think something that actually helps founders or other investors is just being completely honest all the time. Why is it underrated and why is it unpopular in Southeast Asia? Rub some people the wrong way. But at the same time, obviously the way you say it can be very flagrant. But I do think there are certain ways of passing that message where if you're honest, you'll actually add value to that person. But then some people just want to, well, not some people. I think a lot of us, me included, sometimes we just want to avoid that awkward moment of being candid. And what's interesting is that also you're emerging fund manager, right? So fund yes. one. And, you know, being an investing in companies is different from being a fund you know, manager and leader, right? So I was kind of curious, how did you go about raising capital uh, and learning the ropes? I think I just went to the set of LPs that I feel I could 
add value in. Our LPs are mostly venture capitals from the region, which are later investors than us. I just basically went about and tell them that, hey, I can be your local partner in Indonesia and I'm not your competitor. I'm actually complimentary to you and let's work together. And hopefully one of the companies that Kopital invest in can be invested by your company eventually, or you can come in together with us. I think that way we can make the ecosystem better together rather than me trying to go up against all the other VCs. I think it's very important for us to differentiate that pre-seed seed stage focus fund. And we only want to do pre-seed seed stage. And our check size is actually only up to 300K. So even in the pre-seed round, typically people raise above 500 to a million. So if we only take 300K, there's a lot of room for collaboration and co-investments. So that's what I usually tell people who invest in our fund that, hey, you invest in us and let's work together. What's it like to pitch LPs? It's daunting because I think I look up to a lot of them. Obviously, Obviously, a lot of them is where I hope to be maybe in the future for early stage investment. And just, I think all of them are probably smarter than me. So very difficult and scary. But I know that that's another part of being brave. You just have to jump in. You can't take one foot in and one foot out. You just have to jump in and just maybe your thesis work. Yeah. Let's see. Awesome. Looking forward to see how that pans out in the future as well. Yeah. On that note, I'd love to kind of summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about Indonesia. And I think it was very interesting because because we don't, didn't just talk about Indonesia as a market, macros, everything's all sunshine, but also like contrasting what we saw in 2020 versus where we are today in 2023, 2024. Also looking at the founders, the mindset, the businesses, the qualities that we are trying to look out for. So I think there's a lot of interesting realities about it. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about how you went about co-founding Capital in terms of how did you meet your co-founder, uh, how Kukunanangan yeah. plays a role as part of the structure and support at work is there but also how you went about fundraising capital to make it happen and how you came together with that niche and differentiation right so you're saying like hey we're collaborating with you not competing with you but also it provides for the founders a different set of outcomes and value add they're able to provide now lastly thank you so much for talking about exits in Southeast Asia not an easy conversation because a lot of people don't want to talk about it and I think there's a big elephant in the room for the experts in the room and I, we also talk very much about the fact that there haven't been many exits but also the fact that the exits that we talked about also has linkages to IDX, the US stock exchanges. We talked about GoTo, Grab, Okalapak, as well as C Group, right? So I thought there's an interesting set of conversations about the reality of it and also what that means for founders who need to be thoughtful about how they want to intend approach to exit, but also for funds that need agility in how they exit as well. All in all, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Fandi. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.